Good morning, everyone. The reading this morning is Exodus 7:14 to 8:19. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn into blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all of your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on the people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Here we come to the plagues, the great plagues that are still remembered around the world today, um, three and a half thousand years after they took place. I don't know if you know this, but the word for plague is actually the word for punch, as in not punch that you drink, but punch that you deliver, body blow. That's what the word plague actually means in the Hebrew. And I guess one of the questions that you want to ask when you come to the plagues, which are chapter 7 to chapter 10, we're going to look at the first nine plagues. They come in chapter 7 to 10. Um, is why does it take so many plagues rather than one before God is obeyed and God's people are freed? Some people have answered that question by saying, well, God is building up to something. God turns the Nile into blood, but it doesn't work, so plan B. God sends frogs, plan B fails, so God institutes plan C, gnats. And so on it goes, plan D, I'll try flies. This view says that um, one plague by itself isn't enough to persuade Pharaoh, and so God has to wear him down. And finally, the tenth plague works because of the cumulative effect um, of all of the other plagues. And at first glance, that theory does um, seem to have some plausibility. For example, in chapter 5 and verse 2, when Moses uh, goes to Pharaoh for the first time, he says an outright no. And then in chapter 8 and verse 28, he says, okay, you can go for the weekend. And then in chapter 10 and verse 8, he says, look, the men can go, but leave the women and the children behind kind of as a deposit. <clears throat> and then in chapter 10 and verse 24, he says, okay, you can go, but leave your cattle behind. So there is this progress, this progression in Pharaoh's response. And then eventually, the final response, which will be on the screen is Exodus 12 and verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go and also bless me. Um, it's really worth actually you spending a rainy Sunday afternoon um, reading these chapters for yourself. There's some wonderful moments in it when Pharaoh says, to Moses, for example, you can go but leave your animals behind. Moses uh, says, well, you know, we're not actually sure which of our animals God wants us to sacrifice, so we've got to take them all with us, you know. So there are lovely moments like that in the plagues which are worth um, reading for yourself. I wish we had the time to read them all this morning. But I want to say that the wearing down Pharaoh theory of why there are so many plagues is limited in its value to us. I want you to notice that the plagues are very highly planned. There is high order and structure in the way that it is written. There is nothing random. Everyone is planned to the detail. For example, there are an orderly cycle of three in the first nine plagues. So plague one, 
plague four and plague seven, it's all start in the same way. So that's the first of the three cycles in each cycle, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, go to Pharaoh in the morning and warn him. Plague one, plague four, plague seven. Then plague two, plague five, plague eight, also all start in the same way. Go to Pharaoh and warn him, though there's no time of the day given. So that's different. So the first one was go to Pharaoh in the morning and warn him, and then just go to Pharaoh and warn him. And then the third plague of each of the cycles, so plague three, I'm trying to keep up here, plague three, six, and nine, there is no warning. The plague just falls on Israel, on Egypt rather. And so um, there's high order and structure and cycle to the plagues. They're very, very carefully planned. Not only that, but in plagues one, two, and three, Aaron starts the plague. In plagues four, five, and six, Yahweh starts the plague. And in plagues seven, eight, and nine, Moses starts the plague. It doesn't look like God is trying one thing after another randomly to wear Pharaoh down to get him to change his mind. Rather, it looks like God is in perfect control. No, the story of the plagues is so highly ordered, planned, and structured that it shows that the plagues are pre-planned. God knows the final outcome. He's already planned plague 10, and we know that from all the way back in chapter 4. Look on the screen and verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the tenth plague, which we'll look at next week. So I want us to, to, to say, well, it's not that plague one was plan A and that didn't work, so God had to move to plan B. I want us to understand that actually the plagues come as a package deal and that God knew the end from the beginning and that he had pre-planned that there would be ten plagues. And we've got to ask the question, why? Why do we need ten plagues? And so I want us to look at three themes this morning that are going to help to answer that question that cut across uh, all of these chapters about the plagues. Theme number one is God will win. You know, it is, it's popular among some of the literature that I've been reading uh, to say that each plague corresponds to a different Egyptian god. I don't know if you've heard that before. So again, there's plausibility in this theory. So they, the Egyptians worship the god Happy, the god of the Nile, and so God leaves the god of the Nile bleeding so to speak, turns it into blood. They worship the god Heket, who was the god of fertility, which is a goddess with a frog's head. Uh, the, the, the future of the Egyptian people was in her hands, they believed. She's the god of fertility, the giver of life, the giver of babies. And one of her jobs was to control the frog population, hence her frog head that they worshipped. But God overruns Egypt with frogs. It turns out actually that Yahweh is the God of fertility, not Heket. They worship the God Ra, perhaps the most well-known Egyptian God, the God of the sun, and so God punches his lights out in the ninth plague. So there is plausibility to this theory, but there are some difficulties with it. Uh, to start with, not all of the plagues fit neatly correspond neatly to an Egyptian 
God, for example, the flies, the Egyptian, they did have an Egyptian god called Kepri, who had the head not of a fly but of a beetle. So that's not a quite a perfect match. Um, also, they had much more than 10 gods. They had hundreds of gods, in fact. There were 29 major gods, but there were lots of minor gods as well. And so there is some truth in it, but it's not the full reason for it. Um, look at chapter 12 and verse 12 on the screen, where God actually says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both animals, people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So it is true that God is showing his superiority uh, to the gods of Egypt, but it doesn't fit perfectly the ten plagues. The magicians, by their satanically inspired magician magic, managed to copy two of the plagues, water to blood in chapter 7 and verse 22, which we read this morning, and they can also make frogs, because they weren't enough. Thanks for that. Chapter 8 and verse 7. But it's very interesting that they, the magicians can only counterfeit what God has done. They can't initiate it. And they also can't stop it like God can. And so they've got no power to start it up or to end it. And they shocked, aren't they, in chapter 8 and verse 19 on the screen. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is after they can't produce gnats, the third plague. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't listen just as the Lord had said. And so God outwits the magicians. They can't keep up with Yahweh. He beats their gods and he beats their magicians. Uh, but not only are the magicians outwitted, Satan and evil and the spiritual forces employed by the magicians are also defeated. God limits Satan's power. He can limit and stop that power at any time. That is a very, very important thing for us to take on board this morning. It is mistaken to take the view that God is at war with the Egyptian deities in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and luckily for us, God is stronger than them. There are some Christians who believe this, by the way, not quite like that, maybe in a different way. They fall into the trap of thinking that although there is only one God, there is also Satan, who is kind of an equal opposite of God, and, and that God and Satan are engaged in some kind of cosmic mortal combat, and hopefully the right side will win. Can I say that that has more to do with Star Wars than with the Bible? It's called dualism, and it's not what the Bible teaches at all. There are no gods beside Yahweh. There is no dark side of the force that needs to be balanced out by the good side of the force. I was at a braai last night with a non-Christian friend. And the whole way through the braai, he kept touching wood. I said to him, how's work going? Well, touch wood, he said. It's going very, very well all the time. You know, Christians do not need to turn to any other power for protection, nor fear any authority, nor placate any other supreme being, nor submit for insurance sake to any other spiritual rule on earth. We don't have to touch wood or thank our lucky stars or hold thumbs, or venerate the ancestors, or talk or worry about Murphy and his law. God is the only God in the whole world. He will win, for he, there is no contest. He is the one and only true and living God who cannot and will not be opposed 
and who effortlessly smashes his enemies and their false gods. He supremely rules over powerful evil spiritual forces that exist today, including Satan. But they are no match. They don't even come close to God. God is best. God will win. Second theme that the plagues teach us, and that is that God will be known. The author of Exodus has actually told us exactly why there are ten punches, ten plagues. It turns out that the reason for the plagues is not only the rescue of Israel. God could have done that quite easily. It's not that long ago in the Bible that he did the flood, which wiped out the whole world in one go. The plagues serve a much greater purpose than simply the rescue of the nation of Israel. God is making his name known. And so five times throughout these chapters, we have the recurring phrase, know that I am, that they may know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Five times. God actually increases Pharaoh's stubbornness so that the plagues don't work, so that he hardens his heart. Of course, he's got a willing partner because Pharaoh himself hardens his heart as well. God is not working against Pharaoh's will when he hardens Pharaoh's heart, for Pharaoh hardens his own heart himself no fewer than four times in the plagues. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart as well because God wants the ten plagues to play out so that he will be known in all the world and across all of history. Look at chapter 7 and verse 17 on the screen. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. Chapter 8 and verse 22. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms or flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Chapter 9 and verse 14, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 9 and verse 16, maybe the key verse in these chapters, I have raised you up for this very purpose, God says to Pharaoh, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And the last one, chapter 10 and verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them so that I might be known. Why are there ten plagues? So that you will know the name of the Lord. God will keep his promises to the nation of Israel with terrifying power. At the beginning of the plagues, you might remember chapter 5 and verse 2, Pharaoh says to Moses, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know who he is. Well, the plagues will decisively answer that question, loudly and clearly. You don't know who I am? Let me show you. And the plagues come. God will be known. 
In chapter 7 and verse 5, the Egyptians know, shall know that I am the Lord. In chapter 8 and verse 19, the magicians say, this is the finger of God. In chapter 10 and verse 1, the Israelites know that I am the Lord. And in chapter 9 and verse 16, we've already looked at it, but it's worth looking at it again. I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power. And notice this, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Can you see the concentric circles? Pharaoh will know. The Egyptians will know. The Israelites will know. The magicians will know. The world will know that I am the Lord. At the end, the final plague, which we're looking at next week, Pharaoh, going from chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know who he is. Chapter 12, verse 32 on the screen, take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go and bless me. Broken, trembling, smashed. God will be known. And the plagues reveal who he is. He is the God of the nations. He's not just a territorial, localized God, the God of the Israelites. He is the God of the nations. Do you remember that story even before the plagues begin when Moses appears before Pharaoh and Aaron takes the staff and throws the staff on the ground and becomes a snake? A snake was a very important symbol in Egypt. In fact, the Pharaoh had a snake on the front of his crown. You might have seen pictures of that. And so God's snake, Aaron's snake, swallows the magician's snakes. You think you're powerful. You haven't met me yet. And so God is the God of the nations. I am the Lord. I am alone in greatness. Friends, now that you've heard who he is, why don't you take him more seriously? He is the promise-keeping, enemy-smashing God. His name is Yahweh, and he will be taken seriously. He is able with terrifying ease to defeat his enemies and remove any obstacle in his path. Don't even think of refusing him or mocking him or denying him, or ignoring him. Realize who you are dealing with. I am the Lord. I will be known. He will not be ignored. And you know, another sub-theme throughout these chapters is that he will be worshipped seven times during the plagues. The purpose of the Israelites being freed is given as worship. I'll just show you one example. Chapter 7 and verse 16 then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you've not listened. Again, chapter 8, verse 1, 8, 20, 9, 1, 9, 13, 10, 3, 10, 7. Let them go so that they will worship me. Let them go so that they will serve me. They need to stop serving you. For their great purpose in life is to serve me. And do you know that that is your great purpose too? It is to serve the Lord. And so the plagues are a warning. They are a preview of what God is capable of. For the God who struck the Egyptians is the God who will act swiftly 
with terrifying power, and he will strike the world again one day in the fullness of time when he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, back to put all things under him. Then who shall bow, who shall fall on bended knee? That's a line from the first song we sang this morning. And how will we survive on the day that God strikes the earth finally in a mighty way? How will we survive when our anti-God and corrupt world is struck once and for all? That's a very important question. And it brings me to the third and final theme this morning, and that is that the plague show us that God makes a distinction. God makes a distinction. In the act of judgment, God is quite capable of saving, for in judgment, God makes a distinction. Israel are God's people. They are chosen not because they are good or religious or moral or powerful, but because of God's promise has nothing to do with them and everything to do with him as to why he chose his people. And in the plagues, throughout the plagues, he makes a distinction between his people, Israel, who are chosen, and the the Egyptians who are rejected and who are judged. The word judgment is used three times in the course of the plagues. We don't have time to look at each verse. Chapter 6, verse 6 for the note takers. Chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 12, verse 12. But when God's judgment falls, he is able to protect his people from his judgment. He is able to redeem those who belong to him. And we see it five times. I'm going to show you these verses very quickly. When he sends the flies, look at chapter 8 and verse 23. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Chapter chapter 9 and verse 4, the livestock, the death of the livestock, The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Chapter 9 and verse 26, the hail, the only place it did not hail, remember hailstones big enough to kill cattle. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Darkness, chapter 10 and verse 23 No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Perhaps the plague that we can identify with most in our country at the moment. Chapter 11 and verse 7, the final plague which we're looking at next week. Among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. See, God's judgment is not a blunt instrument. It's a scalpel. It is not indiscriminate or random. And do you know the cross demonstrates supremely for us that in his wrath there is mercy. As he judges his own dear son in your place and mine, he extends mercy and grace to those that he has chosen. He redeems. He rescues. The plagues are a preview of judgment, but they also are a preview of the cross. For God makes a distinction. He has delivered a people to himself. He sent Jesus to die to redeem us so that the world will know that he is the Lord, 
in all the earth. He is supreme. He will be known. He will be worshipped. The purpose of your life is to know God and to serve him for the rest of your life in every relationship, every role, every plan, every priority, to centralize him, how you spend your time and your talents and your treasures. Ask him, if you've not done so, to exempt you from his judgment. Oh, you deserve it. So do I. But God is capable of making a distinction in his grace. He loves to be gracious. Ask him to exempt you. Let's pray. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, thank you for the record of the plagues which reveal you to us as the promise-keeping, enemy-smashing God who will not be defied or ignored. Thank you that you are a God who is able to make a distinction in your judgment and that you are a God also of mercy and grace. I pray, Lord, that you would increase our vision of you, our view of you. We domesticate you. Lord, help us not to do that, but to think of you the way you have revealed yourself to us. And I pray for those who might be here this morning who do not yet know you, that they will be warned, that they will be motivated to reach out to you and to ask you to make a distinction with them as well. How grateful we are to you for Jesus and his death and that that can be appropriated to us so that we can be friends with you and never have to fear judgment. And we pray these things for Christ our Savior's sake. Amen.